Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167. Or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. On their online talk show, Good Mythical Morning, Rhett McLaughlin and Link Neal are known for subjecting themselves to extreme taste tests of everything from deep-fried lemons to frog ice cream. But they also give out practical food advice. For example, Link says, skip Nobu and get sushi from the grocery store. I mean, sometimes when you strip away all that pomp and circumstance, you discover that it's not worth the price. Well, especially if you're Link. <laughs> oh, so come on. we've done this format a number of times. And uh, not that I needed this to be confirmed, but uh, Link's palate is significantly less sophisticated than mine. So this is something we all knew. I'm more frugal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll hear more from them later in the show. But first, I'm joined by reporter Corey Mintz to discuss the current state of the restaurant industry. He's the author of The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them, and What Comes After. Corey, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me, Chris. Pleasure. Um, so we're talking about the end of restaurants as we knew them. As we knew them. So let's just discuss where we are. There are 700,000 restaurants uh, in the States. The typical restaurant owner probably makes $45,000 a year. A third of all restaurants close in their first year of operation. So, look, the basic economic formula just seems like it's a mess. 
That's always been a problem. But the unifying problem well before the pandemic has been that there are too many restaurants for the number of people that we have. And they are all chasing the same dollar. And when I say there's too many restaurants, to be more specific, there are too many chains. If you or I open up our whatever restaurant, like a 30, 40 seat place, when the large chain finds a piece of real estate and they open a 200 seat restaurant and they have ample parking, they just siphon all those customers away. And, you know, I trace this back to the sort of post Milton Friedman era of profit and growth at all costs, uh, because for the chains and the franchises that are publicly traded and have shareholders to respond to, they need to generate constant growth. And growth means new locations and growing sales at those locations. So it's always about consuming more of the market to the point where it's less and less feasible for an independent operator to open their own little dream restaurant. So let's go back to the original question. So in the last two generations, what are the key changes in the industry that have resulted in your statement, sort of the end of restaurants as we knew them? Sure. I mean, I think you've got on one side, we just discussed the the constant need for growth within the chain sphere and the pressure that puts on everybody else. A key pressure that puts on everybody else is the pressure to drive prices and therefore wages downward. And within the independent chef-driven award-chasing genre of restaurant, you've got a cultural shift that has trended to a calamitous rate in the last few years in particular. But basically you've got, you know, starting in the early 2000s, this food television inspired generation of young people deciding to go to cooking school because they wanted to be chefs because they saw it on TV as a sort of very celebrated, creative, middle-class job. And then 2008, you've got the global recession in 2008, 2009, which results in all these chefs from big fancy restaurants saying, well, I'm I'm not going to be a partner here because we have no customers. I'm going to open my own little 30 seat places and we're going to play hip hop super loud and serve whatever we want and eat bone marrow. Um, and it's going to be fun. And the sort of media narrative of hey, chefs have been able to sort of democratize dining and present fine dining for a more reasonable price point because there's no uh, tablecloths and high ceilings and expensive renovations. But part of what was really happening, the secret sauce in that sort of golden age of dining was chefs from high-end exporting the labor standards from high-end dining into the mid-range of dining, which meant, well, because I'm a great chef, I can get people to work a 14-hour day for eight or 10 hours of pay through various you know, mechanisms of wage theft. And within a few years, I'm getting to my point, you've got that generation of young people who said they wanted to be chefs burning out because they realized that these are not middle-class jobs or careers, that these are working-class jobs and not working class like a unionized car factory in the 60s, but working classes and I can't pay my rent in the city where I live and work. And then the pandemic happened. So, okay, what what else is going on in the restaurant industry? You talk about ghost kitchens or cloud kitchens. Uh, that's a pretty interesting development. Yeah, it's, it's a commercial kitchen space, usually with room for more than one business operating out of it at the same time. So, you know, multiple little kitchen stalls, say like 200 square feet each 
And each one is potentially selling food from a restaurant that their actual brick and mortar that you can walk into is somewhere else, or they don't have a brick and mortar at all, or they have multiple virtual concepts operating out of the same kitchen. Now, you you gave an example, which was really interesting, about the Cloud Kitchen in uh, Washington Boulevard in L.A., could you just explain, because they they were servicing a bunch of different restaurants, but the menus were almost identical, just a little wording change, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good example of the sort of go slash virtual kitchen and, and some of the distinction. And when I was working on the book, I was looking at this example in L.A. where you've got a kitchen, I don't know how many square feet, but there's, you know, a dozen different restaurants operating out of it. And, and one, at least, that I found the data on, you could see like five different menus for the same restaurant. And it was like a Thai restaurant and you could see the exact same wording for some chicken wing dish that was called 10 different things. Under one brand, it was marketed as Crazy Rich Asian Foods. I I gather it's no longer called that. It was probably called that for about six months after that movie came out. But they, they had like funny pun names you know, bougie wings, I think was the name of the dish. And on another menu, it was called Phuket wings or something like that. But, you know, it's all about A-B testing and seeing at what price point, at what name, at what estimated time for delivery, does it get the most clicks? And that's, you know, that's what we're going to use to drive traffic. It's, you know, it's, it's saying the data is more valuable than anything else about this business. Finally, is there a model of a restaurant going forward where they're making a real money like a real business does. So it's not just a function of, you know, open book management. It's a function of having enough cash flow to take, really take care of the business, have enough money on hand to weather a storm, pay fair wages, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going to have to be a bigger flow of money coming in, Right. Absolutely. Look, restaurants are not a monolith, but I'll, I'll give you an example from one area of the restaurant sector. And it does, in the end, have to do with saying we have to charge what our food is actually worth. Uh, Amanda Cohen in New York runs a restaurant called Dirt Candy. Uh, she eliminated tipping back in 2015, hasn't looked back, hasn't changed. Uh, something she did Last summer, she said, I'm going to pay everyone $25 across the board and, and going up from there, right? And in order to do that, I'm raising prices, period. I can't remember exactly how much she raised. But I checked in with her about six months later to see, you know, how's it going? She said, you know, everyone's very happy. And here's the most important part. We were operating at about maybe one, 1.5% profit margin. And we're doing about 7% now. So right. her customers, and again, that's this one restaurant. They op- right. obviously are not the same as the local Arby's or the local Thai restaurant. Uh, but the bottom line, just throwing out one example, is someone who said, yeah, I'm going to have to raise prices. And everyone is raising prices, period. doesn't matter whether you're uh, the Cheesecake Factory or Dirt Candy. Corey, thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I see a ray of hope. So I worry sometimes that I'm too cynical, so I'm glad to hear you saw something hopeful in what we're talking about. Well, look, we all know and care about people who work in restaurants, and uh, it should be a job that pays you fairly and is something you enjoy doing. So, Corey, thank you so much. A pleasure. That was Corey Mintz, author of The Next Supper. Right now it's time to take your questions with my co-host, Sarah Bolton. 
Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, so you were trained in the French method. Is there something you remember about that training that's really stuck with you that that everybody should know? Well, I guess the most general thing would be good habits. You know, you come into the kitchen, you put on an apron, you put up your hair, you read the recipe several times before you ever start. You do your mise en place, and uh, you work clean, and you clean as Mm. you go. And to me, that's hands down the most important message right there. You know, Bill Buford's latest book, he trained for five years. He worked in French restaurants, I think. He thought it was going to be a year-long thing. It was five years. He said, it was so interesting, he said that a French chef knows how good you are by the way you stand in front of the cutting board. Interesting. So how should you stand in front of a cutting board? I don't know. Now I'm like getting all <laughs> self-conscious about how do I stand in front I, of I a cutting I thought that board. was such an interesting thing, a little tell. I think it's how the arms are placed and how your body's well, squared up. and Well, all of that, yeah. and also that your elbow's not up right. in the air. Right, right. You're using the knife properly. Right. Bill worked in Lyon, which right. is one of my favorite So uh, did French... Jacques Papin when he was 16. I know. And so did um, Danielle. Yeah. Ballou is Ballou. from Lyon. You know, there's so many great people. It's a wonderful food town. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, all right, let's take a call. <laughs> okay. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Linda. Hi, Linda. First of all, where are you calling from? I am calling you from Scarborough, Maine. How can we help you today? Well, I'm sort of a miso curious. <laughs> miso um, curious, I like that's that. That's very good. I like that. I like that. I don't know how to cook with it. I don't know what to do with it. I bought some. I have red and white, and I don't know the difference between the two. Um, so I need some guidance. I know that Mill Street has a lot of recipes that incorporate miso in an interesting way. So when you look at the magazine or if you look online, you certainly will find many ideas there. But in general, just to summarize, what miso brings to the table, and you're right, there's many different kinds, the basic one being the white miso, it brings umami and salt and sugar, Mm -hmm. which are related to the umami. You can add it to almost anything to add a little depth of flavor. I mean, traditionally, it's used in a lot of soups. But, heck, you could combine it with mayo and lather it on sandwiches. Oh, my heavens, I never thought about that. Or with rice vinegar and maybe some sesame oil to make a nice dressing. It's definitely a great glaze for fish and for pork. You could combine it with some fruit preserves and a little bit of vinegar and cook it down and put it on, say, pork tenderloin and roast it. So, I mean, maybe like a peach preserve or yeah, apricot yeah. or something yeah, like that? Yeah, either one of those would be great with white miso. And then sautéed vegetables, you know, take a robust vegetable like broccoli, and certainly mushrooms already have umami anyway, and you add miso to that, and mm-hmm. you're like, wow. So, you know, and a little bit of butter, the two of those do a happy dance. I guess I should mm. uh, throw this over to Chris because I know he has 500 ideas. First of all, let's back up. White miso is milder and more subtle than red miso. So red miso is better with stronger meats and that sort of thing. Secondly, miso, you should think about it more as a foundation. For example, I do a cooked pork, like a shoulder pork for shredded pork with miso and gochujang and maybe one other ingredient for like three or four hours is just to die for because that miso gives that umami base to it, that creaminess, that depth flavor. It's really adding depth of flavor. 
I agree with the how butter. How do you know how much to use? I make it up. I'll I make it up. Okay, I'm yeah, good at that. I, just, I would use, you know, three or four tablespoons or something with a four or five pound pork roast, a couple tablespoons of gochujang. I had a, some frozen salmon, actually, and I thawed it out, and I took mirin and sake and white miso and made a marinade yeah. out of it and marinated for, I think, an hour or so and cooked that. Boy, was that – I mean, mar- marinades usually don't work. But with the salmon and the miso, it completely yeah. transformed it. It got rid of any fishiness into it. It made it really savory and deep. That's another mm. great thing to do with it. Anytime you're going to make a stew or a soup, like if, mm-hmm. it's a, if it's a big meat stew, just add a little red miso to it. If it's a chicken or fish or vegetables, I use white miso. Just add it as a base. It's a base. It's sort of like concentrated chicken stock. It's really the same concept. Yeah, yeah, okay. There's one other thing before we let you go. Okay. We use miso in sweet things. So you can I use know. I know you can use miso in cookies and in baking, etc. Miso really goes well with a white miso, not red miso. It adds just a little balance, you know, a lot of places in the world when they do sweets, there's a, something savory with it. So miso has a little uh-huh. undercurrent of savoriness, which I think works really well. Along the lines of salted caramel. Yeah. Along the lines of <laughs> salted caramel, which I'll put on any food stuff, yes. <laughs> so I think we've given you, are we up to 30 ideas now? Yeah, gonna, yeah, right. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, thanks for calling. Thank you so Take much. Take care, Linda. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need a bit of culinary inspiration, give us a call anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. 855-426-9843 or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is uh, Daniel from Virginia. Hi, Daniel. How can we help you today? This is more of a follow-up. Y'all had me on a short while ago to discuss uh, making my own crushed red chili pepper and gave me some excellent advice. I'd love to fill y'all in on uh, what I've been doing with that. Well, we'd love to hear that. Share. Okay, great. Yeah, I mean, the takeaway from that call, as I remember it, was y'all sort of urged me to, I mean, I love crushed red pepper. I love chili flake. And I also love working with dried chili. So I was interested in sort of combining those two pursuits. The novel suggestion was that I move away from sort of trying to recreate what I usually get in the store and instead kind of experiment with far broader types of chilies that you can get, you know, in bulk and do on your own. And so I did that and I have been really pleased with the results. Because, you know, the thing that um, we're maybe not as familiar with here in the United States as with other countries that use more chilies is that they have such a broad flavor profile. You know, you can have heat, but you can have sweeter and fruitier and, you know, more chocolatey. So, you know, the first thing I did was sort of sit down and figure out what I liked most about chilies. And I I really enjoyed their depth of flavor. I like stuff more uh, kind of on the darker, maybe, you know, more chocolatey side. I really enjoy crushed chili flakes with ancho chilies and pastilla chilies. I will also throw a few uh, chilies they are bowl in there to really kind of amp up that side of things. I've sort of gotten together sort of a house blend for us of chilies that really sort of satisfies much more deeply and completely than something you might just buy off the shelf. So it's been a really fun experience. And how did you make your chili flakes? You didn't take the raw chilies and dry them. You took the dry chilies and crushed them. Right. So that has been sort of an adventure in and of itself. I get them from a local Hispanic uh, market, and we have a Vitamix. But the one sort of drawback is, of course, the Vitamix is so tall 
that it can be tough to process everything kind of evenly all right. at once. The solution I found was our in-laws actually gave us, I think it's called a magic bullet, this tiny little processor. Hmm. And I have found that processing the chilies in a much smaller chamber takes about a fifth of the time and does it much more evenly. What does it look like? It's probably closer to a food processor. It has a hmm. clear plastic chamber to put your ingredients in. You screw on the blade, basically, hmm. and then plug it into the base, which automatically turns it on. And it just works really well. Daniel, I do have a question, though. What percentage of ancho to pasilla to chilies de obovil do you do? You know, I do usually like a one-to-one ancho to pasilla. And then I might, for a batch like that, you know, maybe I'll use two of each of those. And then maybe two to three are bowl because they impart enough heat that I really find I only need two or three. It's, mm. it's kind of a nice kick. Well, you're about 10,000 miles ahead of the crushed red pepper flakes in the jar. I love chili flakes. I use them in everything. So I'm going to have to give you a magic bullet for Christmas. Would you please? <laughs> I'd love that. <laughs> Good well, job, man. That was cool. Gifts as well. Yeah. If you chop up your own and give a little jar to somebody, it never fails to impress them. So that's another nice application. I love this idea. It's thank you. It's exciting and, and it's a cheap gift. Well, th- yeah, thank you all for your advice. It really helped. Yay. Daniel, thanks for calling. Yes. Thank you so much. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, can you make jello out of guacamole? Red and Link have the answer. That's coming up after the break. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash boast. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. In 2009, Rhett McLaughlin and Link Neal arrived at a Taco Bell drive-thru. Uh, how are you? Pretty good. How are you? They had spent a great deal of time rehearsing their order. I'll start with a taco, soft like a cloud. I want mine crunchy. I like to eat loud. I'll choose a chalupa. I'll grab a gordita. And two taco salads for a senorita. That was a clip from Red and Link's fast food folk song. 
Since that video went viral, they've gone on to host the daily talk show Good Mythical Morning, in which they taste anything and everything, including eyeball jello. Nothing is sacred on this show. Even the windows to the soul can be put into jello and eaten. That's right. Eyeballs. Eyeballs. Will it jello? Right now, they join me to talk about how food became part of their comedy. Rhett and Link, welcome to Milk Street. Hey, hey. Thanks for having us. My, my idea of fun is watching a documentary in the fall of Constantinople in 1453. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, social media in and it itself is a bit foreign, and what you do is on the extreme edge of that. But you have 17 million followers. You've obviously struck this amazing nerve. So explain this to me. What is going on here? Why does this work? It works. <laughs> but why does it work from your point of view? Well, our story really starts back in first grade because that's where Rhett and I met. We were both held in from recess for writing nasty words on our desks. <laughs> True story. What's the nasty word to a first grader? Uh, it was pretty innocuous. Like, you know, like you, cursing. Like cursing, but it shouldn't be on a desk, okay. you know. So while everyone else was outside at recess, we were inside enduring our punishment, which was coloring pictures of mythical beasts, which that was the beginning of our friendship and why our daily show uh, is called Good Mythical Morning, uh, just because of that moment of punitive damages, so to speak. Fast forwarding from first grade to once we got out of college and we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. So we used our degree for a while, civil engineering for me, and then industrial engineering for Link. And then after that, we actually went to work for the campus ministry that we had worked with. And, and that's actually where we kind of got involved in comedy. Now, since then, we've sort of publicly told the story of how we've left that world behind. Uh, that's a story in and of itself. But in that, in kind of becoming comedians who were like talking to college students around the South, we're, we're, we're making comedy together. We're creating live comedy music together. We're putting that stuff on the internet. This is like early 2000s. And, you know, there was a precursor show to Good Mythical Morning, which was just the two of us sitting down at a card table and literally taking the conversation that we had had on the way into work, carpooling together. Mm. We would stop and say, hey, let's actually just have this conversation on camera for 10 or 15 minutes. So our carpools became silent, and then we turned them into internet videos. <laughs> yeah, we did, we did not speak to each other until we got to the office. But <laughs> just deciding to display our friendship in an authentic state and have a conversation that we would otherwise have if the camera wasn't on was what people began to connect with. The, the success of Good Mythical Morning, I think, does hinge on our friendship. No, I agree. We like to cut up, as they say. We like to make each other laugh and... We always seek to learn something, but it's usually the dumbest things that we learn. You know, I watched a bunch of episodes. I'm, I'm sure they were from different years. But your hairstyles change a lot. What's going on with your you, hair? You know, just trying to find ourselves. <laughs> Is that still an ongoing I mean, um, activity? Or well, what? I'd actually kind of stop cutting it right before the pandemic. Then I just let it go. And then I started to talk to my wife about, okay, well, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to keep this hair. She said, well, you better not cut it because this is the best your hair has ever looked. <laughs> Can't argue with that. <laughs> um, so let's go to the back. I mentioned your fast food folks. Well, song. hold on. You don't want to talk about my hair? 
I got to talk about my hair. <laughs> no, you know, your your hair changed even more. You had this sort of 50s game show for a while. You were like a Mattel doll for a while there. Come on. Um, <laughs> right, right, yeah. yeah uh-huh. People thought it was a wig. Red enjoyed that description, evidently. Yeah, I did, yeah. very much so. So, fast food folk song. Okay, it was a great song. It was a great gimmick. You go up and, and sing your order in, which lasted three minutes. But you guys are really, you have great voices. You were in a band. By the way, I went to check out your early band, and it said "Page not available." Great. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I guess you did that on purpose. That was a successful operation. Yeah. Then. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you took that down a long time ago. But you guys are good singers. You really are. Thank you. Is, uh, I mean, when we started out on YouTube, musical comedy was our main thing. This was years before we started Good Mythical Morning, and so we made music videos, all comedy songs. And then the, the fast food folk song, yeah, that was legitimately, we, we drove through the drive through at the Taco Bell and we had written this song where we basically ordered everything off the menu. Like I said, it took about three minutes. But the thing that we did not expect that to happen was the guy, what, the guy was, the guy was, it. was following along miraculously. Yeah. And it was phenomenal how accurate he was to the point where we found out later he got a promotion and was recognized at the National Taco Bell Convention <laughs> for that performance. Yeah. He well, well, he, he got the whole the diced tomatoes part. Right. Yeah, it was important. Remarkable. So over time, tasting food uh, became a critical part of your show and your brand, of course. But what is it about tasting food that really makes great uh, YouTube entertainment? Yeah, I think over the the. 10 plus years that we've done this show. I mean, it, it is worth mentioning that, yeah, Good Mythical Morning has been going on for over a decade. We've got over 2,200 episodes of the show and growing every single week. But you're right. Over the course of that 10 years, we started tasting more foods. We started inventing more foods. And the things that we were tasting, either they were dishes that never existed before, like a Dorito-ified Big Mac sandwich. We've had a lot of gross things that we've tried as well, like a beef bile cheesecake. So I think there's a lot of entertainment value in the discovery of amazing new dishes and just the seeing the repulsion of us being willing to try things that are obviously going to be nasty. And then there is, you couple that with this wish fulfillment, because, you know, we're not just going to have a burger. We're going to take every burger from every fast food place and compare them. But then you don't, you know, most people don't then go the extra mile to create that experience for themselves because are they, you know, are you going to go around and buy a burger from every place? No, just let these two idiots on the internet do it and kind of live vicariously through their experience. Are you guys uh, pretending to be idiots sometimes? I mean, because let me just ask this. I mean, you know, one of you chose with the tuna uh, sashimi chose link you chose the sam's choice and Rhett, you chose the the nobu <laughs> no so 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 really i mean nobu versus sam's choice or or did you really think sam's choice was the best yeah we have an episode uh format called naked foods where over the course of four rounds we'd be presented with in each round uh four different plates of the same dish one would be very expensive one would be like sit-down casual restaurant, one would be like a fast food restaurant, and one would be like a gro- just getting sushi from a grocery store, or getting gyoza from the frozen section. And of course, 
We are not told what they are. So, hey, the frozen gyoza can be really good. I mean, sometimes when you strip away all that pomp and circumstance, you discover that it's not worth the, not worth the price. Well, especially if you're Link. <laughs> oh, so come on. We've done this format a number of times. And uh, not that I needed this to be confirmed, but uh, Link's palate is significantly less sophisticated than mine. So this is something we all knew. I'm more but frugal. Something that, play, something that plays out on the internet uh, well, on a regular well, basis. Well, Link doesn't ever have to go to Nobu. <laughs> That's right. He can get Just go to he can be satisfied so easily. You've also done videos about flavor pairings that I guess are based on some sort of scientific matches. So coffee, the scientific match was carrots, white chocolate, I guess caviar is the scientifically paired one. Uh, but, Rhett, you chose eel, oddly enough, to go with white chocolate. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those situations sometimes where, because, you know, as you mentioned those things, those pairings, or the fact that I paired the eel uh, with, the, with, with the white chocolate, is that what you said? Yeah, white chocolate. So, of course... 2,200 episodes, I have since forgotten that I enjoy eel and white chocolate together. Now that you bring that up, I can I can put myself back in that position where I'm tasting it in the moment, and I'm like, we are really trying to do a service, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point, because I, I remember the Willa Jello episode, which I just loved. That was one of my favorites. You guys actually, I, I think with the guacamole, you were saying... This is like someone took guacamole, added like five cups of water to it, and really watered it down. And you actually were trying to describe what guacamole jello tastes like, and you were taking it seriously. And I think the fact that you, quote unquote, take it seriously, you are really are trying. It, it has to be real yeah, on some yeah. level, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're giving the viewer the the experience vicariously through us. So it's like the more we can hurl ourselves into it without actually hurling. That was probably not a good choice of <laughs> words. Yeah. You can't do that on YouTube anymore. Yeah. Nope. What, you, you, you can't throw up on YouTube? The, uh, it's funny. The, the standards for what you can do on YouTube have changed over the years and gotten more and more strict. I mean, there, there's been things that we were not able to get down that then you had to like spit into a bucket, which I guess is a form of vomiting. Can't do that anymore. Those are the good old days. Wait, wait. Well, oh, so wait a minute. You, <laughs> so what else is there that you can't do anymore? You can't eat things that are inedible. Not edible. <laughs> um, like you, like we, we did an episode where we were exploring strange food addictions that people have, and you know, there's people out there who are addicted to eating their own mattress. So we decided to try. To eat a mattress, just to see, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt. That doesn't that doesn't fly on YouTube anymore. Jeez, God. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So to go back to Jello, so the two that you tried, I love jellyfish, the animal that most closely resembles jelly. <laughs> right. I, right. I, I thought mm -hmm. that's an interesting mm -hmm. rationale. And then fish eyeballs. So I, I, I guess neither of those you could actually eat. Uh, we've had we've tried so many uh, fish eyeballs. I mean. I've tried to get fish eyeballs down dozens of times. I don't think I've ever successfully done it. But yeah, but that, that is kind of the approach with something like Will It Jello. You know, it's where, of course, we take a bunch of different foods and we try to make them into jello. And so we've got an incredible team 
trying to figure out how do you make jellyfish into jello. But they will create a couple of things that are good. And then we progress to a place where very few people would probably enjoy it. Well, you, you started with Twinkies. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and then you ended up with fish eyeballs. So I would say that's right. a progression. Yeah. Right. Twinkie Jello is absolutely amazing. And we may be two of the only people on the planet who've ever eaten it. Well, my guess is the two of you are the only two people who've eaten a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you think, as I'll call you guys entertainers, if that's okay, um, do, do you think there's a difference between being likable and being memorable? Or are they the same thing? I think there's a big difference. <laughs> I mean, some of, some of the people I remember from my life, not very likable. But very memorable. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, all you have to do to be memorable is to do something that sticks in your, in your brain. Yeah, I, I do think that likability, in a lot of ways, is, is, is based on trust. We are who you see. On camera. I mean, clearly, if we're having a horrible day, we're not going to act like we're sad on while we're sitting there eating Ben & Jerry's ice cream. But in a lot of ways, what you see is what you get. And, the, you know, we are two guys who've known each other since 1984, who are best friends in real life, business partners, who invite you into this experience every single day. And I think that there's a there's a authenticity and a trust there that then leads into likability. And also, there's two of us. So if you don't like one of us, maybe you like the other one. Yeah, I think what he's saying is that I'm likable and he's memorable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that pretty much sums it right up there. Ren Lake, it's been uh, it's really been my my deep pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, this has been fun. That was Rhett McLaughlin and Link Neal, hosts of Good Mythical Morning. Their studio, Mythical, also operates Mythical Kitchen and the packaged food review website, Sporked.com. You can also see them on the Food Network series, Inside Eats. You know, Rhett and Link are following a long tradition of eating strange foods. Finns and Russians used to put frogs in milk to help preserve it. The Romans ate roasted mice that were fattened on acorns. And, of course, fermented shark sandwich is still a thing in Iceland. So is eyeball jello, one of Rhett and Link's recipes, really all that surprising? Well, fish eyes are a culinary prize in China. One blogger writes, quote, A rush of fatty fish flavor is accompanied by a gelatinous, spongy texture. Swallow too quickly and you'll miss the nuances. So, as they say, fish eyes are in the eye of the beholder. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. We're heading into the kitchen with J.M. Hirsch to learn this week's recipe, Cretan Salad. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So you're at this restaurant on a mountain in Crete. I just want to say at the outset, this is one of those, you know, farm to table where the farm is like nine feet from the table. (laughs) So were you sitting in the vegetable garden or were you sitting next to it? We were wandering through it. it. Literally, this vegetable garden just goes up and down the mountainside. And this is not your picture-perfect English garden. This is an anything-goes sort of garden, much like the salad itself. There are a million variations across Crete. It's called dacos. And the only way I can think of to 
barely do justice to what it is, is to say it's a combination of Italian panzanella, which is bread and tomato salad, with a Greek feta tomato and olive salad with, and roll with me here, an American chef's salad from like the 70s. It what? is it is just a crazy you lost mix me. You lost of me. ingredients. <laughs> and I got to say, it was one of the best things I ate in Crete. It's really just a mishmash where anything and everything goes and somehow it always works. Now, the base of any proper dacos are rusks. They're made from barley flour and they're closer to almost a crouton texture, you know. And what happens is those go generally at the bottom of the bowl. And then all these other ingredients, greens, roasted beets, fresh peppers, cucumbers, onions, tomatoes, fresh and sun-dried, raisins, olives, roasted potatoes, grilled eggplant, you name it. All of this gets dumped on top of those rusks that soak up all of the juices from all those other ingredients. And then you throw in some red wine vinegar, which is kind of the base of the dressing. And then you throw on some of the cheese. Now, they use mizithra, which is kind of a creamy, salty goat's milk cheese, very similar to feta. And they throw that all together. And the result is it's sweet, it's savory, it's got sour notes, it's got bitter, it's salty, it's creamy. Every bite is different and really explodes in your mouth like a million different ways. I just want to comment that when you get this excited about a recipe, there had to be a lot of wine involved first. Is that true? I mean, it's Greece. I mean, of course, there's a lot of wine involved. And, you know, it makes everything taste better, too. But truthfully, even without the wine, this salad is just a riot of flavors and textures. And, you know, and if your ingredients aren't like perfect from Crete. It's forgiving because there is so much going on. And I think that was kind of the secret to the success that you can use, you know, your average grocery store produce and still get an amazingly interesting and really satisfying salad out of this. Because you have feta, olives, sun-dried tomatoes, raisins, right? Exactly. And those are all big flavor ingredients. They really pull their weight in a salad like this. So since we don't have rusk, so you're toasting, making your own big croutons or what? Yeah, we basically, we found that the easiest solution was to take a kind of a hearty sourdough loaf, tear it up into chunks and toast that. That was kind of the closest we were going to come to a rusk. And they work quite well in that case. And likewise, we don't have the local goat's milk cheese. And we found that feta is the closest way to replicate the kind of salty, savory and slightly creamy effect of the cheese in this salad. It breaks up. It's delicious. Oh, it's so wonderful. So this is a recipe with a simple name, Cretan salad, but belies the complexity of the textures and the flavors. And now is probably your go-to summer salad, right? Absolutely, because anything goes, and that's the way I like it best. (laughs) JM, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. You can get the recipe for Cretan salad at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Most Street Radio. Coming up, Grant Baird and Martha Barnett. Go nuts. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. 
You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to take a few more calls with my co-host, Sarah. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jan Mueller calling from Hardwood, Vermont. How can we help you? I'm a teacher and a coach, and I like to make chocolate brownies for my classes and my teams. You know, kids like them, and they're relatively easy to make in large quantity. I'm gluten-sensitive, so I make them gluten-free also. I love to cook for a long time, but I'm not really a baker. And I don't have a good sense of how to tweak a baking recipe. But I have had some really good brownies in my day. So I kind of know what I'm going for, but I don't really have much idea about how to achieve it. When you say you know what you're going for, describe it to me. What does it taste like? What's the texture? It starts with the chocolate. All chocolate is not created equal, but it's kind of like this intensity, but not too intense, sweet, but not too sweet. And then there's that whole texture mouthfeel thing. So it feels like, wow, this is like something has come together here in this really specific way. If you ask somebody to talk about a brownie, they... Wax poetic. Yeah, they... This they, is like mystical yes, at this point. Exactly. I would try to find the best gluten-free chocolate brownie you possibly could and, you know, try several versions and just see what you like the best. I always recommend King Arthur Flour because they really know what they're doing. As I recall, they also recommend superfine sugar, which you can make yourself. You grind it up in a blender, regular granulated sugar, because it dissolves better, and then you get a really nice uh, fudgy brownie with a shiny top. I mean, is chewiness essential to your divine inspiration for a brownie? I would say not necessarily, but when you look up different recipes, you know, people are always throwing the words chewy and fudgy around, right. and I think it's kind of neither, you know? Oh, We're okay. getting back to that mystical plane. Oh. Have you eaten a great gluten-free brownie or made one? I'm going to cite my most recent off-the-chart gluten-free brownie experience, okay. and it was by the Encore Bakery, which is a relatively small cottage bakery in the Detroit, Michigan area. Okay. Well, did you call them and ask them about their recipe, which is what I would do? I have not. You know, it's amazing if you call people up, just call them up or email them or whatever. They're often willing to help you. Last question. When you make your own gluten-free brownies, are you disappointed with them? You're not achieving what you want? The best ones I've made out of the many batches, I'm not quite satisfied there either. So I feel like if I'm going to keep doing this, I want to up my game. One thing I can suggest, make the batter and let it sit for half an hour, 45 minutes. And sometimes, because starches don't hydrate the same way, you know, gluten does. So you may end up getting a little more texture if you let it sit for a while. Okay. The problem with this is you're attempting to do something that's the most difficult thing to do, to take the gluten out of something that needs structure. And so you can do a cakey brownie and you could do a soft, moist, fudgy brownie. But if you want a brownie that has a little bit of chew, you have to get over the gluten hurdle here. And beating the eggs a lot, that mixture with the sugar might also help as well, you know, extended period of time to develop a little structure. But I would call Encore. 
And then King Arthur. And, um, Jan, let us know <laughs> what happens. Yeah. How it comes out. Jan, yeah. thank you. I would love to. I would love to. It would be a fun little adventure. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you're having trouble in the kitchen, Sarah and I are here to help. Give us a ring anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Zach in Queens, New York. Hi, Zach in Queens, New York. How can we help you today? Well, I wanted to ask you, which is probably a simple question for you guys, but for me, uh, I'm thinking about it. So I'm a self-taught home baker. And I got into baking, making pizza dough. Now, mostly I'm baking uh, loaf white sandwich bread, but I occasionally make baguettes or a sourdough boule. And my question is really about scoring. You know, why do I score or why shouldn't I? Well, when you put the, you know, you go through the whole process of making the bread and letting it rise and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then it's time to put it in the oven and you shaped it. And when you do put it in the oven, there's initial lift and it's fast and it's intense. And the weakest spot is the outside of the bread. And if you don't sort of give it a place to go, like to release, to let the steam out, to let the dough expand, it's going to do it wherever it wants to. You know, it's sort of just willy-nilly, you know, will explode here and there. It's like when you want to prevent a forest fire and you do a controlled burn. This is a controlled slash. And it's just very important to have a very sharp tool like a sharp blade or, you know, those uh, lames you can buy from uh, baking stores. And then it splits open where you want it to. That's really the reason to do it. No, I feel like I lose a little bit of my rise, like my dough deflates a touch after I cut it open. And then I bake it off. And uh, to me, I find that to be a little bit discouraging. That's because you're probably cutting it too deep. If you say that if you're scoring it before you put it in the oven, you end up with less rise... That's probably because you just – it should be like a quarter inch deep. It's a very shallow cut. Oh, that might be my yeah, problem. I think that's your problem. If you're doing it like a half inch deep, that's probably why. How deep are you doing it? Well, I've got a razor blade, and maybe I am doing it too deep because if it's only a quarter inch, maybe I am putting it yeah. like a half inch or so. That might make sense. Okay. Zach, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for calling. Yes. Yeah. Thanks very much. I enjoyed talking with you, and enjoy your day. We okay, will. you Take too. Care. Bye-bye. Take care. This is Mo Street Radio. Right now, it's time for a language lesson with Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. Grant Martha, what's going on? Not much, Chris. We are uh, feeling a little nutty today. In fact, we're going nuts. We're going to talk about all kinds of nuts and the etymology of nut, for starters. You know, it comes from the Latin word nux, which is N-U-X, and the genitive form of that is nucis, N-U-C-I-S, which is the root of a whole lot of interesting words in English, for example, nucleus. And we also get the word nougat from that, and Spanish hmm. nuez, which means a nut, and German noose, which means nut. The, the reason you guys are on the show <laughs> is, is, when, yeah. is when you say things like, that's the genitive form. I mean, just going like, there are people who still know the genitive form of, of Latin words. It's like they're always being in England, right? 
<laughs> People like you just give me hope. And then there's that really unusual word. It's just kind of one of those stunt words that nobody ever uses, but it shows up in all the Latin dictionaries for nutcracker. I can't say this. Uh, well, in I guess in Latin, it would be nuki frangibulum. <laughs> nuki frangibulum? I don't think that's how Caesar said it. <laughs> But I think I can hear the parts there. The nut at the beginning and the frangle is like the related to the word break, right? It's from the Latin word for break. It's it's related to frangible and fragile and words huh. like that. But what's interesting about it, too, is that although this is a fancy word for nutcracker, the ancient Roman playwright Plautus used it jokingly to refer to a tooth. So I guess you could tell your kids to, you know, brush their nuki frangibuli. <laughs> I'd hate to think where the toothbrush would end up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also thinking about, Martha, when we talk about nuts, uh, chestnuts and castanets, mm-hmm. because castanets comes from the Spanish word for chestnut, castaña. But besides those clattering little clappers known as castanets that you hear in some Spanish music, another thing from Spain is horchata, that sweet white drink that you may get with your tacos. And although it's usually made with rice in the U.S., And in Mexico, in Spain, it may be made from tiger nuts and almonds. And in Latin America, they may also make it with melon or gourd seeds. So it's just interesting. Like these seeds keep showing up again and again. And tiger nuts, I don't know if you're familiar with these, but they're actually a tuber from a Mediterranean plant. But it's just very interesting to me. We often find that things in common names, we call them nuts, but they're not nuts. Uh, Which reminds me, there's another thing we call a nut, Martha, that isn't a nut. The coconut. I love this etymological story. Even though the coconut isn't really a nut, it turns out that uh, Spaniards and Portuguese people who encountered the product of the palm tree thought that the, you know how a coconut, if you you just hold it in your hand, it kind of looks like a little bowling ball? Mm -hmm. Well, the Spaniards and Portuguese, when they were encountering the palm tree for the first time, pictured not a bowling ball, but a mischievous little grin, you know, like a grimace. And so the word for that was coco or coco, which was a word for goblin. And so the coconut mm. became oh, this, that's cool. this, yeah, it's a very picturesque etymology of why we call that coconut. I will never look at a coconut again without <laughs> thinking about a goblin face. I Thank you so much. <laughs> It'll be looking back at you, Chris. Yeah, here's looking at you, kid. Yeah. <laughs> Well, then there's nutmeg, the uh, the spice, right. too, which, uh, of course, comes from the Latin nux muscata, ultimately, which means musky nut. Huh. Uh, you also see that in, in the German word for nutmeg, which is muscatnus. Huh. And you see muscat and the names of grapes and oh, wine. Muscat. It's that same yeah. root, meaning musky. Guys, I think we've covered the great and long-storied world of nuts <laughs> in, uh, you know, hey, Nuts are fun. Great to talk with you. Thanks for bringing us out of our shell. Oh, boy. Bye, Chris. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. That's it for this week's show. You can find every single one of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, MilkStreetRadio.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about all of us here at Milk Street at 177MilkStreet.com. There you can become a member and get full access to every recipe and access to our cooking classes and free standard shipping from the Milk Street store and more. We're on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street, on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. 
Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.